0: Welcome to Women, Conscription and War, a podcast series focused on the actions, motivations, and experiences of Melbourne women in the anti Vietnam War and anti conscription protests between 1965 and 1972. In case you haven't listened to the introduction to this project and where I give some history of the Vietnam War and conscription in Australia, a few things to keep in mind. First, This is in no way an attack on Vietnam veterans. I am the daughter of one myself. This is filling a gap, not opposing or challenging. Second, I don't necessarily agree with everything my interviewees say, so don't get angry at me for reporting their views. Third, I don't always give the name of the person who's speaking when I use excerpts from interviews. They're always credited on the website, which you'll find at womenconscriptionwar.com. You'll also find complete footnotes for the other work that I've used. Lastly, please note that I have edited these interviews for use in the podcast for clarity and to really hone in on the relevant ideas. Can I ask you a little bit more about the Draft Resisters Union? Were there very many women involved in that? Um, yes, there were a lot of women.
1: Um, I think it was also at the time of the start of the women's movement. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, looking back on it, it was a pretty sexist movement, the draft <laughs> resistors, in that the women were, we weren't quite the cups of tea makers. We were, we were very involved in the whole demonstration. Um, a lot of the partners of the draft resistors were you know equally uh, affected by it their their they, their lives were disrupted and you know like like me many of them had, had had to leave either jobs or study that they were doing in order to support their partners and to make their own protests about about the uh, the war but of course it was the draft resistors themselves who were the focal points mm-hmm. of of the of the campaign, and I actually ended up as the uh, the secretary and treasurer of the draft resisters union uh, because everybody else had gone to jail. All <laughs> started off with the, started off with all the men who was, uh, held those positions, but that wasn't really feasible because they were either on the run or they were hiding underground, or you know they couldn't really do things as you used to have to do, to go into a bank, to do the banking and stuff, because they'd get get, uh, caught. So I became the treasurer of the draft of this union.
0: The National Service Act required every 20-year-old male in Australia to register for national service. If you didn't want to comply, you had a couple of options. First, and legally, you could register as a conscientious objector. This had been allowed under Australian law every time national service existed, but that certainly didn't mean it was an easy process, nor that you would actually have your status as a conscientious objector legally ratified. As the Vietnam War progressed, other options were exercised as well. There were those men who registered, but then failed to follow through the rest of the process, such as turning up for their medical. And then there were men who refused to comply even with the registration process. Men like Tony Dalton, whose mother Dorothy was involved with Save Our Sons and is mentioned in my episode about that group. And so you must have come... Your number could potentially come up in late 69, would that have been, yeah, for so National I turned, Service? Yeah, I turned, so
2: I turned
0: 20 in 1968. So had you thought about how oh, you yeah, would, I'd, I'd thought a lot about it. And um, you filled out all the application no, ties, you, no, so I you didn't. didn't do that bit, I, quite, I, I was wasn't sure. The,
2: I was one of the very early ones. Just say, I'm not having anything to do with it. Okay. So, so, you didn't
0: even get to the point where your num got called and then you refused. You refused to participate right from the start. Right
2: from the beginning. Cool. I wrote a letter saying I'm not registering and I hand delivered it to the Department of Labour and National
0: Service. Failing to register at all or refusing to comply at any other stage was breaking the law. There are varying numbers put out for the number of men who actually went down that route but the number of men who were arrested for doing so was relatively low. And there's a variety of reasons for that. I'm not going to go into all the detail of that here, but if you're interested in an in-depth look at this whole process and some of the men who were involved, then Bobby Oliver's 2022 book, Hell No, We Won't Go, has a very thorough investigation of, of the available records and also includes interviews with some of the men. For our purposes, what's important to know is that a number of the men who broke the law in this way went on the run, staying away from their families for up to two years to avoid being arrested and or drafted. Many of these men were assisted in the process by women. In this episode, you'll hear from Sue, Caroline, Francis, Sandra, Anne, Lynn, Cece and Jean, who were all involved in one way or another with the Draft resistors. A key organisation from the late 1960s was the Draft Resistors Union, or DRU. At the top of the episode, you heard from Sue McCulloch discussing the fact that she became both the Secretary and the Treasurer of the DRU. Francis Newell was also involved. And then, when the Draft Resisters
2: Union was established after the moratorium in uh, June 1970, you know, I was very involved in supporting the Draft Resisters Union and aware that the underground network had been set up by September of that year, although Michael wasn't actually. Uh, underground in 1970, so he wasn't actually underground, and therefore I wasn't directly involved in the underground network until 1971.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask about the after Resisters Union. You say you supported that them. Does that mean you were, you know, you were kind of vocally in favour of what they were doing, or again, did you were you writing for them or giving them money? What did that support look like?
2: Uh, So, no, I wasn't writing leaflets or um, providing any money. I mean, (laughs) I think Michael and I were living on something like $21 a week. That was my student allowance that supported us both. So, no, I certainly wasn't giving any money. But what it means is that I was aware of the meetings that were going on, the strategies that were being developed and... I was certainly prepared to to support the underground network, you know, once um, Michael went underground,
0: yeah. Another group, which I've found less information about than the DRU, was called Conscientious Objectors, Brackets, Non-Pacifist, which I believe was formed in 1967. This group has particularly come to my attention because a letter signed by Jennifer Talbot as secretary of that organisation appeared in the student papers at Melbourne, Monash and La Trobe Universities. I haven't been able to find any other information about Jennifer Talbot aside from the fact that she was also on the committee for Save Our Sons. In her letter, she wrote that, quote, At the present time, the Australian government is supporting the USA in a war which many informed and responsible people believe to be totally wrong and misguided. To kill in self-defence is one thing, to kill in a country thousands of miles from Australia to appease the Americans, and as a sort of insurance policy, is both foolish and truly base. She goes on at length to explain why the notion of trying to stop communism is foolish. And in the letter, she adds that, quote, Conscientious objectors, non-pacifist, was founded last year to cover a wider field of conscientious objection than the simply pacifist. We are working to achieve the acceptance of the principle of non-pacifist conscientious objection. We maintain that you can have a deep and true objection without being a pacifist. We rely on the Nuremberg trials for our justification. How much of this was Jennifer Talbot's own words, and how much was written by a committee, of course, we can't know. But in putting her name to it, she's clearly deeply committed to this cause. Women assisted men from the beginning of the process of resisting the draft and throughout the process as well. For example, they handed out pamphlets that outlined the options men had and indeed offered to give them advice on how to be a conscientious objector. In one pamphlet listing names and phone numbers of people who can help, of the eight people who are mentioned by name, five of them are women. Jean McLean, Joan Coxedge, and Dorothy Dalton, all members of Save Our Sons, as well as Sue McCulloch and Sandra Goldblum-Zerbo. Caroline Hogg also found herself involved in assisting draft resistors, thanks to Sandra Goldblum-Zerbo.
3: She wrote me as a draft counsellor. Oh, it involved um, young men if they were faced with filling in their form or if they'd been. Um, if they'd been called up just coming for general advice, I think only two or three people ever came. Um, but there was a, there was a notice up in your area with your telephone number that people could pop in, and a couple and a couple did.
0: It's important to mention at this point the Abraham sisters, Shirley and especially Vivian. One of their most significant contributions to the protest movement was editing a journal called The Peacemaker from 1964 to 1968. In her book, Hell No, We Won't Go, Bobby Oliver calls Vivian, quote, the strongest and most dedicated supporter of conscientious objectors to compulsory military training. This is Frances Newell.
2: But the other women who were... Not students, but who had a key role, right? Were um, Vivian and Shirley Abraham. Um, And they, you know, single handedly pretty well ran the Federal Pacifist Council and ran the Conscientious Objectors Advisory Groups and put out the newspaper and really kept a track of who was being going to court and who was being arrested, you know, so they were absolute stalwarts.
0: Vivian attended court cases and reported on their progress and outcomes. She regularly wrote to men who were going through the conscientious objective process, visited them in jail, and was just generally really involved for several years. In an essay about the journal, Bobby Oliver notes that the Abraham Sisters, quote, also served as an unofficial postal service for objectors who were on the run. So one of the things that I've heard about you, Sandra, is your involvement with uh, with organising safe houses for draft resistors. So, I mean, my first question is why? Why did you get involved in doing that sort of thing?
4: That was in my DNA. What can I tell you? It was <laughs>
0: just seemed obvious as something that you should do, could do?
4: Well, it was just something that I could do. I knew people.
0: Did you ever host people yourself? I can't At remember that,
4: to tell you the truth.
0: Unlikely,
4: because I think by that stage, John and I, we separated in 71. That's when we were living in Kew and it was after the moratorium we separated but we had full house. He and I had that room, the children would have been in that room. I think it was only a two bedroom house. So I might have, but I don't remember. People moved in with me after John separated. It was mm. really tight squeeze, for lots of kids all under the age of five and several hours. And eventually, not surprisingly, that household broke up altogether. Then I moved into another house with an an adult couple and another, there were five children, two of the children were always mine, and two people without children. And that household broke up and it was left with me and I started living there with this guy who was a draft resister. Yeah, so he was was a draft resister. He didn't want to go conscientious objection, so he was... Hiding in plain view. He went to work. He worked at the International Bookshop. He went to work every day or however many days it was that he worked and he'd come home and blah, blah. The day before Whitlam was elected, bang, bang, bang on the front door. Chris says, I know what that's going to be. He goes bolting out the back. We had a back laundry or something like that. He goes bolting out the back. I open the door and there's these two really heavy-looking dudes in suits standing there with a piece of paper in their hand and what I had learnt was um, they can't serve you unless you take paperwork. So they say, does Chris Bridley live here? And I said, no. They said, yes he does. No. Yes he does. And you're served. Boom! And before I had a chance to close the door, they threw it inside and that's considered to be delivered. Anyway, and then the election results came and that was that, so he didn't have to go and hide somewhere else.
0: Several years ago, Rennes Witham did a marvellous project for the Labour Party in Victoria called The Safe House Project, in which she interviewed both people who housed draft resistors and the men they sheltered. And I'll put a link in the, on the website if you're interested in reading about those interviews and also seeing the videos. Almost every place mentioned by the men in those interviews involved a married couple, and there's absolutely no suggestion that the wife in any way objected to this. Given it's the 60s and early 70s, it probably meant the wife was actually doing all the housework and looking after the men too. For example, Bob Muntz remembered Mrs Ibsen, whose husband at least was a member of the Communist Party, saying, quote, "'I've washed your clothes and hung them in the middle so neighbours won't see strange clothing.'" Michael Hamill Green remembered a South Melbourne house rented solely to Draft resistors, which had probably been organised by Jean McLean, and he also recalled briefly living with a South African Quaker named Elizabeth Taylor in the suburb of Malvern, who fed them well and had no expectation that they would do housework. Tony Dalton, as part of that project, recalled staying with Connie and Keith Ben for 10 months when Connie's mum was also staying with them, and she, Connie's mum, taught Tony to cook Italian food. Tony's parents did not themselves get involved in this side of things. Yeah. Did your couch ever get used for other draft resistors, or was that too close I doubt it. to home? <laughs> um,
5: I suspect it was
2: partly... You never knew, in a sense, as to when... what. When the police
4: were looking.
0: In his book Drafts Men Go Free, Bob Skates does mention that the Daltons regularly hosted meetings about draft resistance at their home, even if they weren't housing other men who were actively on the run. On the other hand, one of the people who did house draft resistors and was interviewed for safe houses was Anne Segrow, who I also got the chance to speak with.
6: And then in the early 70s, with the uh, anti-conscription movement, we had a couple of um, draft resistors staying with us just as they were moved around. So Bob Skates was one. He stayed here the longest. And there was another young fellow whose name I can't remember. Um, Bob Skates got picked up at some stage and ended in Pentridge until the Whitlam government. But it was it was kind of... it. It was real. It was real cat and mouse, you know. There because and there was always ASIO and secret police. You were conscious all the time of there are people taking photos, checking out, watching and seeing, tapping your phone or whatever. So you everybody, I think, was aware that this was the reality. So you were relatively careful what you said on the phone. And there was real care in in hiding Bob, for example, that he, during the day, was not to be seen on the whole and that not to ever answer the door, not to go, Mm -hmm. all of that sort of stuff. Just And it must have been really hard for those young men to go from one place to another to another, knowing that sooner or later, chances are you'd be picked up. Because yeah. there was a real intention to get them, because they was they were standing out saying, "It's not, it's not going
0: to be me. I just, I won't go." Yeah. How so, did you get involved in offering a safe house? Did somebody just approach you and say, Have "You got a couch?" No idea. Probably. <laughs>
6: <laughs> Probably. I mean, it was Giovanni was quite close with Sam Goldblum, who was the chairperson of CICD and also very much involved in the moratorium. So it was this kind of network of people who you knew and who were trusted and so someone must have said well can you hide a couple of fellas and why wouldn't you so we (laughs) did otherwise if we didn't and others didn't well they were taking a stand for what you know you really had to just in terms of solidarity i think Mm. and because we didn't want them to be caught they were brave enough to say we're not going and
3: so you had to give them some support, I think. Oh look, it wasn't it wasn't hard to get on the list of people <laughs> to do that. Probably, I don't know. Sandra Zerbo may have given my name, or um, the Labor Party. I'm not. I'm honestly not sure. I had contact. I mean, we had some people, but not very many because I was known to be politically active, and my then husband, Robert Hogg, even more politically active. We hid one or two people at our place for a short while. And then my move was to move them on somewhere else pretty quickly. Also, the drafters just as Tony Dalton and Michael Hamill Green had their wigs fitted in our kitchen, came about because one of Robert's friends knew somebody who made wigs perhaps. And I mean, there was a group of us. We knew who the draft resistors were. We knew them. We we didn't and didn't want to know where they were hiding out at any particular time. I mean, Bob Skates must have been hiding out at Anne and Giovanni Scrooge's place because he was caught driving away from somewhere in Coburg. But I just knew he was in hiding. I had no idea where, even though they were great friends of mine. So we learned to shut up. And I was teaching at Fitzroy High School and there were enough people on the staff and I'd say, look, I've, he's a nice bloke. Could you manage to put him up for three or four days till we can find somewhere else? You know, there was a network, It was a bit like the Underground Railway, only not as dramatic. I don't want to inflate it beyond its um, its role, but it worked pretty well. At that stage of our lives, we lived in
7: a collective, you know, which... The mainstream press called a commune but we called it a collective (laughs) and um, because he was resisting the draft, we had that big network of draft resistors and some of us – some of them were hi- well. One of them was hiding in our ceiling. <laughs> 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 he had this little trap door where he would he would go. But after I read my asio file, I realised that like they sat out the front of our place. It was a big house in um, Vermont. You know, a rented house with twelve people living in it. And the, the ASIO Asian would set out the front and write down the number plates of cars that were coming and going. But it, I, I find it really interesting that we must have hidden our tracks really well because they never picked up on the fact that we had a house full of draft resistors.
0: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, then being involved in the draft resistors was something pretty significant for you at the time. In, were you involved in like actively involved in helping them to move around and be safe, or was that just because it was the house and thats people just came and stayed?
7: Um, well, it was it was sort of me saying they could come there. There are there were some of those twelve people who lived in the house were not political mm. at all, and and so there were three of us who were involved with the draft resistor stuff,
5: and and eventually we were harbouring draft resistors, driving them around, having adventures. You know, it was pretty adventurous (laughs) and funny, sort of very funny things happened, (laughs) like the day I stole a car. Very funny things. I lived in South Melbourne at the time and when we drove draft resistors around, we tried to get different cars because we knew we were being watched and followed and everything. How much we knew, I'm not sure, but we... We just were very careful. So I used to sometimes borrow my grandmother's Mercedes-Benz or I'd borrow someone else's car. One day we ran out of cars and Jeannie said, well, look, you'll find, gave me a set of keys to a blue Holden and said, look, the car will be parked halfway along your street. So I walked out of my house, walked halfway along the street and there was a blue Holden. It was open. I thought, oh, that's a bit peculiar. Anyway, I hopped in and on the front seat was a packet with fresh hot chips on it. And I thought, that's <laughs> funny. So I ate a chip and put the key in and drove off. To get to the meeting place, I've taken the wrong car. Awesome. I mean, I've stolen a car. So the absolute nightmare was, what if I get caught in yes. a stolen car? <laughs> with a draft resistor. Yeah. <laughs> So I thought, I've just got to get back to that car park, get rid of this car. So I just drove back. By this time, it was about three quarters of an hour later because by the time we realised what had happened. And where I was living was opposite the South Melbourne football ground. And it was a football day, so there were no car parks anywhere near <laughs> where I took the car from. I had to park it again about a mile away. LAUGHTER <laughs> And so that was one of the sort of mad sort of adventures that happened. (laughs) Yeah, it's very very funny. To sort of be breaking the law on all fronts was getting a bit too much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) While it was the men avoiding the draft who had to hide, women were, of course, also impacted. Families didn't see their sons and brothers for however long and may not even have had a letter or a phone call on any sort of regular basis to know that they were doing okay. Girlfriends and wives were impacted too, as Francis Newell recalls.
2: So I finished my degree in 1970 and in 1971 I went to work um, for a small NGO called International Development Action. And that organisation had its office in the Methodist mission in Peran, Paran Methodist Mission. Mike and I were living close by. I was working at um, IDA. And so things like this would happen. There was an internal phone system whereby The receptionist down on the ground floor could ring me on the internal line and, you know, say hello or whatever. Anyway, one day she rang me and she said, I don't know whether this is is of any interest to you, Fran, but there's two Commonwealth cops downstairs in the foyer. The uh, cleaner has uh, just sent them on their way. And if you look out your office window you'll see on the other side of Chapel Street there's a Chinese cafe and just behind the curtains there you'll see that's where they've gone and they're keeping a watch out for you. So I said, oh, yeah, thank you. I'm very interested in that. Not that I had any inkling that she knew who I was or what I was on about. So I just then locked up the office and departed via the back stair. well, fire escape down the back of the building. So it was was a part of everyday life, I suppose.
0: Were there other times when you knew you were being watched or followed?
2: Well, um, yes. So that was just at the time when Michael did officially go underground because it was around that time that uh, he was arrested put on bail and then uh, went underground, absconded and went underground. So around that time, we no longer lived together in Paran, but we moved, well, he went underground and I went to a share house in Kensington um, with two wonderful women, um, Sister Penelope, who is no longer alive, so you can't interview her, but and Jenny Walpop. So the three of us were living in Kensington, and the real estate agent rang up one day, and he didn't speak to me. He spoke to probably Sister Penelope, as the um, person who had the lease, and said we've uh, had been contacted by the Commonwealth Police. They believe that uh, there's a draft resistor living with you. So clearly. They were onto it. So, yeah, there was always a sense that uh, one was being under surveillance, yeah.
0: Did that make any difference to the way that you lived or acted? I mean, I guess you were already very aware of being cautious with with Michael uh, underground. Did it it have an everyday impact?
2: Uh, Well... How it worked was I was at work, I was living in the share house, and then at weekends I'd try and get together with Michael. So, knowing that you know there, I was under surveillance, I would go to complicated lengths to, you know, leave work, take a variety of different forms of public transport, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that's how that's where the effect cut in was the roundabout methods I used to connect up with Michael. And so there was one very um, amusing occasion at Melbourne University, so I traveled by public transport to Melbourne University and sought to lose myself in the union and then to meet up with somebody who was taking me to see Michael. and That young man and I were walking through the university together when we met his girlfriend, and she wanted to know what they were doing that night. It was a Friday. And, of course, he couldn't give an explanation. (laughs) So she looked at me very sceptically, and that that was the end of that relationship pretty much. (laughs) So he very faithfully didn't say what he was doing, but um, she wasn't impressed. (laughs) So all sorts of little incidents
0: like that. One of the things Frances would do is wear a wig as a disguise, and one of her wigs is now in the Melbourne Museum. You can find a photo of it on the podcast website, womenconscriptionwar.com. We'll finish with Jean McLean, who's already been mentioned as being crucial to this whole process. In the following excerpt, she mentions the Dru, which, as a reminder, is the Draft Resisters Union. Uh, did you have much to do with the draft resisters, with Tony Dalton? And yeah, Mary I, I and
8: ran the, I ran the underground. I did. Tony Dalton stayed at Ian Turner's house. That was his first. Mm. And then he stayed at Connie Baden's house. Then, because I used to move them every fortnight, so then, you
0: organised the movement yeah, and the transport the whole
8: thing. And then he stayed at the McCulloch's house in, in South mm. Melbourne, and that was when he he lost his camera. He was out. and He lost his camera and he rang the police to report <laughs> it. And then he rang me and said, "I, I forgot," you know, because you see, middle class people, yeah. the reaction, "Oh, you've got to report it." or oh, the insurance won't pay her, so we had to move him.
0: <laughs> were there lots of women involved in, like, being those underground stations? No,
8: well I, well, I mean, other people did some, obviously, but I'd go to, like, I went to Marge Gunner, to the Benz, to Turner's, to, to quite a few people. They were people I knew who weren't publicly associated yeah. so much so that people wouldn't think. And I had two guys down at Carrum where I lived, but not in my house, but up the road that was a... He was a East Berliner, and he lived there. <laughs> I used to see him on the beach, but I, I never quite knew why he was there, but anyway, <laughs> he he gave us his house. It was his old house, and he gave us his house to pop people in but I had to feed them
0: trotting along with food up Trot, to this up, allegedly empty house yeah. Yeah.
8: and a guy, another guy called Ian Turner who we sent to Eden, he was studying architecture at Melbourne Uni and he was called up but he didn't want to go so we sent him up to Eden to a friend who was a fisher person. And he stayed there and he loved it so much he never wanted to go back. And what he ended up doing was being a pearl cedar.
0: When you approached people to 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 house the draft resistors, were Hmm. people generally open to it?
8: Oh yeah. I mean there was only one who worried because she thought the cops had come and her husband had lose his job. I mean yeah. But if anyone had any doubts, i just forget it. Yeah. But no, most of them were perfectly happy. But I never landed the people for too long. Yeah. And, I mean, Michael Hamill Green, <laughs> Christ, I'm not only out, got him housed, but I was also used to go to his, the lecturer who was you know, doing his PhD, mm. what, do you, what do you call that? Supervisor. Super, yeah, yeah, supervisor. I used to go and say, oh, Michael's so distressed to the <laughs> pressure on him in the underground. Could he have extra time? And I used to go and get him extra time. And he doesn't even acknowledge it. It's funny, but people turn the stories the way they want. Were. were you mostly yeah. housing
0: the draft resistors with families, with couples? Yeah, they were
8: mainly families. Yep. They were cousins, you know, they always yeah. became their yep. cousin. And sometimes people, he'd Ian Turner, the other Ian Turner, he said, I didn't know you had a cousin. He said, "What was alleged?"
0: That's a lot of women being involved in that Mm. kind of Mm. underhand, underground way, which is really interesting. And again, Mm. not, you know, I, I read Bob Skates' "Draft Men Go Free," and it's not really. That much mention of that no. aspect in terms no. of because without those people they would have been yeah, exactly. sleeping on and, the streets or caught very quickly. And he was a
8: pain in the neck, but no, because I had him. I had him in a house. He had a a, a Volkswagen little bug that he had all anti conscription stuff and everything <laughs> all that. And we said, you know, you shouldn't go birding around that because they know exactly whose car it is. But he got bored and did my theory. So he used to go off and then and get a call, oh he thought the cops were coming all that. But yeah, I mean he doesn't even <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's funny in fact, you know, the young men who I don't know what they would have done the main they were distinctly unorganized, <laughs> really, you know. I another one I got on a boat to New Zealand. He I went I went to the Painters and Dockers and I had to go and see them at six in the morning because they work different hours to other human beings. And I went and there was a guy at the door with a gun. Mm-hmm, it's interesting. Anyway, I said I'd come to see Nichols this moment. They used to call him Putty nosed Nichols. But anyway, I went to see him Because you have all these fantasy beliefs, you know, that the the, uh, painters and dockers and the wharfies had connections with the underground. And part of that was because people with a a jail history couldn't get work anywhere else. It was only the builders, labourers, painters and dockers where those areas, where they could get work. uh, Because it was hard. Difficult, but, you know, but heavy sort of work. So, oh, I suppose certain about that wasn't what I was looking for. About the anyway, off I went, and I said, "I want a passport for this, <laughs> well, a false passport for this young man." And he said, "What gives you <laughs> the idea that I can get him a false?" I said, oh, "Well, I've read all about it all." Oh, and he said, "Well, it's not quite as simple as that." it is possible, but it's very difficult and it's very expensive. And I would suggest, Jean, that you could think of another way. He said, but I'll tell you something we can do. We can put him in one of the grain ships. You know, we used to have the ship going to, to New Zealand. So we poppled him off there. And He stayed in New Zealand. I mean, see, we had had much better relations than we do now. We deport people. I I got him
0: smuggled. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Women, Conscription and War. If you enjoyed it, maybe you could tell someone else about it or leave a review somewhere to help other people find it. My immense thanks to all the people I spoke to for this episode. You can find a complete list of them on my website, WomenConscriptionWar.com, as well as a bibliography and some relevant images. My thanks also to Sarah Tomasetti, who gave permission to use her mother, Glenn Tomasetti's music, in this project. It's a moment from her song, The Ballad of William White, that you hear between sections throughout this podcast you